we present once again the adventures of Captain Corrin, space pirate, and insurance salesman. And featuring myself as Quantum Jim. Tonight, Corrin offers advice on contents insurance. It had been a long and expensive day at the space races. We were on the way home, and I had the crew seeking out a rich vessel for a spot of the old piracy and plunder. Quantum Jim, the rapscallion, espied a fat corporate space building slinking homeward, probably filled with a load of business types working late on the juice. We fired a broadside, and she soon stopped to allow us to board. Dar, good evening, sir. I was wondering whether I could possibly spare a moment of your time. Uh, look, we're actually being attacked by pirates. That, sir, is precisely why I want to talk with you. Me name's Corrin, and I represent Onion and Onion Financial Prudence, located out in Barnard Star. You're an insurance salesman. And part-time pirate, aye. Sir, a ship like this is a prime target for attack and plunder. Yes, I know. You're attacking us right now. See? It'd be lucky I'm here. Are you presently covered by contents insurance? Is this really the time, Mr... It's Captain. Sorry, Captain Corrin? Uh, no, we're not. But is this really the time? Sir, I know how much damage a pirate can do. If you were attacked today... We are being attacked today. See just how dangerous this region is, and you without contents insurance. Just how much do you think you'd lose? Well, I don't know. Pretty much everything, really. Not pretty much everything, sir. Everything, everything. Now, how much do you think it will cost to replace? Well, taking inflation of the market, minus the appreciation of the actual ship... It'll cost a lot, sir, won't it? Uh, well, yes. What if I could offer you, right here and now, a comprehensive home and contents package that will guarantee you full replacement on all future attacks? Yes, but we're, we're under attack now. At Onion and Onion, we pride ourselves on taking a blank slate approach to all our clients. Even when they present a clear and present credit risk? Blank slate, sir, means blank slate. Well, where do I sign? Here. And here. And here. Yes, that all looks in order. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go and be plundered. Good day, sir. Oh, and here's me being forgetful. Advance me hearty. Prepare to be boarded. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. And welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, uh, both in Auckland, New Zealand, as far as I'm aware. Uh, I am Josh Edison, and they are Dr. M. Dentith. Um, but we're still zooming it for for reasons of me not being able to get over to M's place, essentially. But that's okay. It's it's the it's the age of Zoom. I think everyone ought to be well used to it by now. Although I am beginning to hope that we can get past the age of Zoom. Actually, I. I actually don't mean that. Zoom has actually been really, really great for being able to bring people together during the pandemic, allowing people to engage in events overseas during the pandemic. It's just that sometimes you spend an awful lot of time on Zoom and you just get that kind of Zoom fatigue. Mm. 
Yes, I mean it's no replacement for for local interaction, but yes, it's certainly um, certainly made international interaction a lot easier. You've been doing a bit of that, haven't you? At the wee wee hours of the morning. Yes. So on Wednesday this week, I gave a talk on fake news in the Narmore Symposium. So that's a philosophy symposium at Sacramento State in Sacramento. And then I also attended as panellist the final two 45th Midwest Colloquium of Philosophy talks, one given by David Cody and the other by Charles Pigton. Names that should be familiar to anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while. So there you go, Zoom. It, it puts the world at your doorstep. This podcast is not affiliated with or sponsored by Zoom in any way. You know who it is sponsored by? Our, our patrons, is where I was going. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, I, I thought you were about to reveal a deep, dark secret. No, unfortunately, no. We really can't mention. No, 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 it's, 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 it's all good. Uh, yes, apparently we have a new patron, one who dare not speak their name. Yes, this is true. We have a new patron. They have pledged to the level that we simply mention their existence and then never mention them again. Mm, funny how that works. You know who you are. You, you know, know what you've done. You, you know that we know who you are and what you've done. And we know that you know that we know that you know that voodoo that you do so well. Mm. I think that they actually came to a nice conclusion. I thought it was. I, th- I thought you were going to have trouble sticking the landing there, but you didn't. So good. Now we uh, we have another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre for you this week, and I think unless there's anything else we need to announce right now, we should probably just go straight into it. No, I think we should play this sting. And now we join our host for another episode of Conspiracy Masterpiece Theatre. I'll be honest, I prefer the new What the Conspiracy Sting, but that's still a mighty fine sting. Yeah, it does need a little bit of up-tempo-ness, I feel. Maybe a little. I I wanted to go for something with a kind of classical feel, and I've gone for something which sounds like you're about to engage in guided meditation. Yes, I, I mean, ASMR is big at the moment. Maybe we could, maybe if we headed in that direction, we might get a bit more, a bit more traction with this our audience. This is the point in time where I don't want to look up conspiracy theory ASMR. Mm. I bet it's out there. I bet there's entire channels devoted to making sounds like Alex Jones. It's Go probably... to sleep with mm. the sounds of Alex Jones. Mm. I can't imagine that, and, and, and I'm not going to try. No, 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 it's really not worth it. Instead, let's talk about a seminal paper mm. in the philosophy of conspiracy theory literature, Conspiracy Theories and Fortuitous Data, a paper which is both incredibly important and also, in many respects, deeply weird. Mm, it is a bit. Um, this is... A paper that was co- appeared in the Philosophy of Social Sciences in May 2010, co-authored by... Now, how do you pronounce the surname of the first individual in question? So I think it's Joel Bulting and Jason Taylor, but given that no one in the philosophical side of discussing conspiracy theories seems to have ever talked with these gentlemen... We do not know. Oh, well, that'll do. Yes, B-U-E-N-T-I-N-G. As someone who did German in high school, I see a U-E and think Bunting, but 
Probably not if they're American. Anyway, Bunting and Taylor. Uh, so yes, we've not heard from them before, and as I believe you've implied in the past, we're not going to be hearing from them again? No, they do not appear, at least in the conspiracy theory literature at all. Now, I don't know which of the two people I'm about to mention did this, but I remember talking about this paper with Brian L. Keeley and Lee Basham back in the Miami conference back in 2016. And one of them had tried to track these two people down, and as far as they were aware, they had written this one paper, left grad school, and then gone on to do non-academic work. So as far as I'm aware, they're not active philosophically at all. One of the projects I actually do want to engage in later on this year is to see whether I can find them, and also find out, once I've found them, do they realise just how important a section of their paper ended up being? Mm. Uh, and we'll see why it's important shortly, I think. Well, indeed, um, it's actually the first line of the abstract. Mm, it actually, yes. Do you want to do it or shall I? I think it's my turn to do a bit of the old abstract reading. So well. let me, me an abstract. have a punt. We offer a particularist defence of conspiratorial thinking. We explore the possibility that the presence of a certain kind of evidence, what we call fortuitous data, lends rational credence to conspiratorial thinking. In developing our argument, we introduce conspiracy theories and motivate our particularist approach. We then introduce and define fortuitous data. Lastly, we locate an instance of fortuitous data in one real-world conspiracy the Watergate scandal. Mm. So, yes, that very first sentence, we offer a particularist defence of conspiratorial thinking. And that is the first time that language gets used in the philosophical literature around conspiracy theories. Mm. But we'll get to that when they actually define those key terms later on in the paper. Yes, well, actually, pretty, pretty, much, pretty much straight away, almost. They start the paper by basically... Uh, talking about stuff that we've already covered in the past, but the, the idea that conspiracy theories tend not to be taken seriously, uh, that they're either thought of as, as irrational or, or simply as a punchline. They, they quote an, uh, an old Onion article um, doing sort of a satirical... Well, not just that. They quote the Onion web series that existed all the way back in the early 2010s. Mm. That, 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 that literally used conspiracy theory as a punchline. Um, but it's then the pro-weather conspiracy mm. theory that big weather is trying to persuade you to engage in buying um, umbrellas, raincoats, and the like. Which kind of, I mean, 20, like, like, like if, if this was prior to 2010, that still sounds close enough to some of the climate change stuff to, to barely count as satire anymore. But anyway, um, so they, they, they start bringing it into, um, into this arena by saying, issues surrounding the rationality of conspiracies have received increasing attention among epistemologists. Central to these discussions is the question of whether it's ever rational to accept or believe a conspiracy. Opposing views can be distinguished based on how they approach conspiracies. According to the generalist view, the rationality of conspiracy theories can be assessed without considering particular conspiracy theories. On this view, conspiratorial thinking qua conspiracy thinking is itself irrational. 
The particularist view about conspiratorial thinking denies that the rationality of conspiracy theories can be assessed without considering particular conspiracy theories. And so there you have it, generalism and particularism. So I, I, I understand, so, so this, these weren't terms that were invented for the epistemology of conspiracy theories, though, were they? They, they existed elsewhere in social sciences? Yes, so you actually find the discussion of generalism and particularism to be quite endemic in ethics. So if you're a generalist about ethics, you take it that there are general moral principles that apply at all times. So, for example, if you're a Kantian, you've got the categorical imperative. If you're a utilitarian, you're maximizing utility. If you're a virtue ethicist, well, insert justification about moral principles there because virtue ethics is quite complex to describe. Well, so if you're a particularist, you'll go, well, no, actually, there are particular moral principles that apply only in certain situations. So you end up being a kind of contextualist. The appropriate response to this situation is to act in this way, but that isn't the appropriate response in another. So a moral particularist will go, look, there are particular moral rules or codes that apply only at particular times. There are no general moral principles we need to apply to. Now, I don't know whether Booting and Taylor are taking the particularist versus generalist stuff wholesale from the discussion of ethics, because they don't really bring that up. They simply use the terminology particularist and generalist to describe the two camps of view of conspiracy theory. But I have to assume they've at least done some ethics, seen those terms and go, oh, we can co-opt that into our epistemological discussion of these things called conspiracy theories. Mm. Now, when they, in that sentence, on this view, conspiratorial thinking, qua conspiracy thinking is itself irrational, they have a footnote which references the works of Brian Keeley, Steve Clark, and Pete Mandic as being essentially, the, 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 these are examples of people who have generalist views, which I don't really think any of them can be seen to have, although that's Mandic, the problem. Mandic, probably more so. Clark and Keeley, no. Very much didn't talk about types of them. Um, and that's the th it's, it's come up more than once that people sort of try to put generalist words in Brian Keeley's mouth, and I always have to go back and, and, and make sure I wasn't imagining it, but in his, in his first one, in Of Conspiracy Theories, 1999, in the conclusion he says, For Hume, miracles are by definition explanations that we are never warranted in believing. If my analysis here is correct, however, we cannot say the same thing about conspiracy theories. They are not, by definition, unwarranted. I, I, it's starting to irk me that people seem to keep missing that. But anyway, it's not actually well, relevant just, to the just, arguments that are being made here. Josh, never read my book. Okay, I will Because I also make this mistake about Keeley. I mean, it seems to be a thing where everyone is reading commentaries on Keeley. Those initial commentaries get Keeley wrong. Those commentaries then inform subsequent work on Keeley's work. And thus it just gets being hammered home again and again and again that Brian thinks that belief in conspiracy theories is prima facie unwarranted. Whilst you are correct, that is not the case. Mm. And I've got a piece under peer review, which in one section 
actually tries to address that quite briefly. There's another paper I've been working on for the last few years, which I kind of dip my toes into from time to time, where I'm actually going to do the whole mea culpa, I got Brian wrong, and try to diagnose exactly why I got Brian wrong. Mm. But anyway, it's not actually that uh, important to the, the well, general thrust of this Well, it probably is to one paper. of the listeners of this podcast, well, yes, Brian yes, Alkeely. Probably, but, but, but in terms of the actual argumentation. But anyway, it's, it's, it's something... Well, actually, it does come up again. It does come up again. They also make a similar claim. Yep, yep. And actually, they also make, a, they make some weird claims about Keeley generally throughout this paper. Mm. It's not um, just getting him wrong. It's inventing positions that he does not have. Mm. Uh, but at any rate, so that, that's basically the introduction. That sets things up, um, and and that's where it, basically that, that's it. That's where it comes from: generalist versus particularist. And they uh, start in the first section of the paper proper: conspiracy theories and theory choice, um, giving their reasons for why they 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 go for the particularist approach. So they they start as 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 all good philosophers do by defining their terms, and they use David Cody's definition of conspiracy theory. Which, if you recall, he sort of takes the the one that uh, that, that sort of Brian Keeley and Steve Clark used the whole you know uh, uh, multiple people acting in secret to achieve a certain aim, and then he added on the conditions that um, the aim that they achieve has to be the aim that they intended, and in particular that it ha- the conspiracy theory has to be in opposition to an official story, which is something that we've cast out on in the past. But that particular one. Um, that they, they, they really that they they sort of say we really want to emphasise that last one has to be in opposition to an official story uh, because that becomes important later. Um, and I do remember in, when David Cody talked about that, one of the things I thought was weird because it sort of suggested that something can go from being a conspiracy theory to being not a conspiracy theory if it becomes the official story eventually, or it may be the official story in some places, but then not in others. And David Cody, since he talks about a sort of cultural context, that kind of makes it okay. But I don't know if this paper ever um, avoids that problem. But at any rate... Well, actually, there's a bit at the end where they... If they're using Cody's definition, then they make a claim at the end that makes no sense. So Mm. I think they're picking out what was at the time the most recent attempt to define Mm. what counts as a conspiracy theory and going, well, this is what philosophers believe. But yes, there there are problems with this definition which come back to haunt them. Mm. Um, But so having, having, having stressed that point, they say... Why do we accept a particularist approach to conspiratorial thinking? Choosing to believe a conspiracy theory is the choice to believe in one theory, the conspiracy, over another theory, the official story. Though this may seem obvious, it's crucial to note because it draws to attention the idea that a rational choice to believe any theory depends on considerations of evidence. Judging any theory to be insufficient independently of considerations regarding the evidence is irrational. Thus, a rejection of conspiracy theories simpliciter seems irrational. Rational rejection or acceptance of a theory must supervene on the quality of evidence for or against that theory. Which, yeah, that's... That, that's that particularist approach. That's something that we've been talking about for a long time. Um, and they, they, they go on to say that evidence which suggests that conspiratorial thinking in some cases can be rational comes from the fact that we have uncovered actual conspiracies. This suggests that it cannot always be rational to believe in a conspiracy theory. At that point, they reference Charles Pigden, 
Um, I forget, I, I can't actually remember which of his papers, but I, I know in con the Complots of Mischief one, he made a great point about the fact that these conspiracies happen all the time, and then the one before that he did as well. But I mean, Brian Brian did, did as well. He's He's been but quite Josh, explicit Josh, in some of his ones. They've already said that Brian says mm. that belief in conspiracy theories is irrational. They can't then reference him saying that belief in conspiracy theories can be rational. Well, That yes. would be inconsistent. Precisely. Um, but yeah, so th this section basically... They just focus on the idea that evidence is what counts. Um, they say adjudication of how irrational it is to believe in a particularly th particular theory requires consideration about the actual evidence in favour of the theory. Thus, if we're to substantiate claims that believing in a conspiracy theory is irrational, the finger needs to be pointed at the unacceptable evidence or reasons conspiracy theorists have for accepting particular conspiracies are true. Again, yeah, that's... That that's that's the that's the thing we've been harping on about for who knows how long. And indeed, this entire section of the paper, I was looking back at the notes I made back in around about two thousand and eleven when I read it, and most of it is yes, I agree, nice or I've made a similar point in my writing. Hmm. And then they 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 carry on to say uh, just shortly after that. If the conspiracy theorist wants her pet theory to be taken seriously, she needs to support her position, which runs counter to the official story, with evidence that supports her position without seeming unduly selective of what counts as good evidence. Our aim in the next section is to do precisely this. We hope to provide a criterion that can be used to differentiate the rational acceptable conspiracy theories from irrational unacceptable ones. This criterion is the presence of what we call fortuitous data. First, however, we turn to broader concerns regarding evidence. Um, and they they don't uh, reference Lee Basham uh, in this paper. I didn't I didn't didn't notice him in the footnotes. But um, that does it, their, their approach does seem to uh, avoid his critique. Uh, I remember he was talking about the arguments of Keeley and Clark, and and his critique was that essentially when you boil down to it, what the earlier papers say is that good conspiracy theories are good and bad conspiracy theories are bad, when the real question is, how do you tell the good from the bad? And um, that seems to be what these guys are setting, uh, are trying to, to set out a, a, a framework for in the next Actually, section. so I'm just having a look at the references, because when you said they, they don't mention Lee, I was going, actually, don't they? In case of no, they there's one reference to Steve Clark, one reference to David Cody, one reference to Brian Keeley, reference to Charles Picton, Pete Mandick, and then there's basically three other references hmm. to John Leslie, Matthew Tempest, and Peter Vargan. Peter Vargan. Vargan. Yeah. Yes, I, I remember him. So it's from actually a, completely a tiny reference list, hmm. absolutely small, which is kind of odd because as we've covered quite a lot of papers now in the Masterpiece Theatre mm. series, there are a lot more references they could be making at this time. Mm. Nevertheless, um, the next section, Evidence, Conspiracy Theories and Fortuitous Data, uh, starts with a reference. It starts, Brian Keeley, 1999, is the philosopher who has thought the most about evidence in conspiratorial contexts. Keeley calls the evidence that best supports conspiracy theories errant data. Errant data focuses on non-trivial facts or events that remain either unexplained by or contradict the official story. Again, I, that, that didn't, doesn't quite sound right. It, it didn't seem to me like, like Brian was saying errant data 
is the is the thing that best supports conspiracy theories. It's, I guess you could say, he was saying in some cases it's the thing that supports the choice to believe the conspiracy theory because the the, the conspiracy theories can explain this errant data that the the official story can't. And indeed, um, part of his argument is there's always going to be data errant to any theory of an explanatory kind you put forward. So conspiracy theories will explain some data, which is errant to the official theory using Cody's gloss, and in many cases the official theory is going to feature data which is errant to the conspiracy theory. It's just a feature of theory choice, and conspiracy theories might make use of data errant to official theories, but it's certainly not the evidence that best supports conspiracy theories. It's just a feature of theory choice, as you say. Hmm. Um, so he's, they, they say, here's a rough approximation of how errant data is used by a conspiracy theorist. To begin with, conspiracy theorists emphasize, one, the perceived importance of non-trivial facts that remain unexplained by the official story, in conjunction with, two, the explanation that one ought to be explained. By one, a high degree of significance is attached to contradictory or unexplained data, and by two, this data requires explanation. But errant data is not explained well, if at all, by the official story. If there's enough errant data, then our natural tendency is to regard with increasing suspicion the explanation provided by the official story. Now, this is a classic case of if an explanation of an event starts diverging from standard explanations of events, then we tend to get very suspicious. So if your explanation as to how a building fell requires you to not cite the laws of physics and the weight of the building, but talk an awful lot about wind speed, unicorns, and pixie dust, you end up going, well, that's a lot of errant data, and you're using an awful lot of it to come up with an alternative explanation and we find that suspicious. So that's the kind of the worry about errant data. If there's too much errant data in an explanation, then it kind of diverges from reality in such a way that people go, I don't think that's the case. A little errant data, absolutely fine. Too much, people end up being suspicious. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, they do, they do say... They come to the conclusion that Keeley is basically saying that conspiracy theories are explanatorily have greater explanatory power than the official story. They say they are superior. Mm. Uh, and in a footnote, say um, C. Keeley, nineteen ninety nine, who thinks that despite this explanatory power, conspiratorial thinking is irrational. To which again I say, oh, he bloody doesn't. But anyway, doesn't well, doesn't. It was the fashion of the time. <laughs> it was the say fashion that Brian the made these claims. Mm. So then they get into this idea of fortuitous data. So they so they're not they don't think errant data is specifically errant data is what we need to be looking for. Um, we we need to look at something called fortuitous data. And they set this out saying, but of course we do not believe that all conspiracy theories are rational, even those with tremendous explanatory power. We take the difference between a rational and an irrational conspiracy theory to hinge not only on its explanatory power, but also on one feature of the evidence for the official story to which it is opposed, called fortuitous data. 
What is fortuitous data? It is data that, one, supports the official story, but two, fits the official story too well, is too good to be true. And finally, three, the lucky nature of the data is left unexplained by the official story. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that bit in the middle, too good to be true, I mean, that, that really seems to be the, the core of it all. If, that if they think the, the, the official theory rests on something that's too good to be true, too convenient, too much of a coincidence, um, that's when you need to start looking at the conspiracy theory. Uh, they, they, I think it's at that point where they mention Pete Mandic with his, with his Shit Happens paper. Do you have the bleep? Do we need to bleep things out again? His... Well, the thing is, I can bleep myself. Oh, you can saying, bleep yourself. So oh, that's I can right. say happens. But if you try to say it, and we'll try to get the timing right, so try and say the title of that paper. That paper called Shit Happens. See, that doesn't block you out at no, all. No, certainly on my So when I try to say happens, then every time I try to say or or you... Sorry, actually, that was a message from a ship out in, say, the, yeah. in, 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 in the harbour. In the Hebrides. I think, I think the Titanic is sinking. Uh, again. Anyway, they, they reject this idea, essentially. The point is, um, they say, yeah, yeah, sometimes stuff can just happen, sure, but not always. You can't always just say whenever some something looks too good to be true or too weird or what have you. You can't always just use that as a cop out to say, yeah, sometimes just stuff just happens that way. You never know. Um, so they start looking at examples of fortuitous data and um, they, they pick some interesting examples, wouldn't you say? They do. In fact, there's quite a 9 11 flavour to hmm. these examples. So the first one they talk about is that pesky Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon just four miles away from the White House. Uh, Brian will be aware that we had an entire discussion about the location of the Pentagon earlier today in Charles Pigton's session at the 45th Midwest Colloquium of Philosophy. And one of the things which is really interesting about Flight 77 hitting the Pentagon is it hit the one reinforced wall on the Pentagon, such that it did as minimal damage as a... I'm about, about to say a fight a fighter plane can do. Of course, not if I a no. commercial airliner. I don't know why I'm confusing my commercial airliners with fighter jets. A commercial airliner can do, and they're going. Mm. That's kind of fortuitous in that the plane actually does turn to approach the Pentagon, at which point you go. It's quite lucky it struck that particular wall rather than some other wall they had five and, to choose from yeah, yes you you need to explain why they chose that wall mm. did they intend to hit that spot the one reinforced spot on the pentagon yes and even the paper they actually say that the plane hit the refurbished section of the pentagon rather than anywhere else suggests in italics that the pilots intended in italics to hit just that spot which got me like the, when i first saw it, I was like, is this a is this a 9-11 truth paper? Is this like that Dear to Care one we looked at the other day? But I don't think it is. But And then the other the other bit of fortuitous example of fortuitous data they talk about is the discovery of the passport of Satam al-Sugami, which I, I, I often hear this um, people talking about how they found Muhammad Atta's passport, but that wasn't 
I think they're thinking of this one. This was the passport that was found by by a civilian on the ground in New York um, following the 9-11 attacks and was the passport of one of the um, hijackers. And it's one I've seen come up. I, I've, I, I've always... Th- this isn't related exactly to this paper, but I've always had a question about that one, which is... It's always presented in isolation. The 9-11 truthers will say, look at this, they found this passport completely completely unharmed, just lying on the ground. How, how do you explain that? And, and I've, never heard, I've never seen anywhere any account of what other stuff they found from either of the planes. So I don't know how, how remarkable that is. If, if there was a bunch of wreckage that was ejected from the planes during the crash and was found on the ground, then the discovery of this particular passport isn't actually that great a big deal. On the other hand, if, as they sort of imply, this was the only artifact recovered by one of the planes and it just happens to bolster the official story, then yes, that would be suspicious, but I, I don't actually know either way. So I believe although I'm working on memory here, that actually quite a lot of debris was recovered from those flights in New York. So they did discover a whole bunch of personal effects belonging to passengers Mm. and thus also the terrorists on those planes. And so in isolation, yes, finding a single passport seems very fortuitous. There was a lot more debris from the planes than people think, because you do have the impact of the planes colliding and flying into the buildings, but you've also got the blowback from that event at the same time, where loose belongings, such as luggage and the like, is going to be affected by that momentum and move backwards as the main mass is moving forward. So it's not unexpected to find thing, to find small objects of that kind after a disaster of this type. Mm. But anyway, for the purposes of this paper, what they, you know, they want to point out, here's, here's a bit of data that just seems too good to be true. Um, you've got something that, that just fits the official story like a glove, um, and yet the provenance of it seems a little bit dodgy. And they contrast this, though, with things such as the fact that Flight 175, which hit one of the two towers, uh, hit it between the 78th and 82nd floors, now, that's a fact, it's true, but unlike in the case of the Pentagon, there, there doesn't seem to be anything significant about the, the site of that particular impact. Um, so they, they don't consider that fortuitous data, that's, that's just data, um, but fortuitous stuff is where it's sort of, there, there is this element of it being particularly lucky for the official theory. Now... They go on to talk about this by, they say, supporters of an official story do not normally find the lucky nature of fortuitous data problematic. Conspiracy theorists do, emphasizing the fact that the lucky nature of the data points towards a different explanation. Is the conspiracy theorist justified in holding this? Consider the Pentagon case again. How does the official story account for the location of the plane crash? Insofar as it is merely a plane hitting the Pentagon, the official story can account for this by pointing to the supposed terrorists who hijacked Flight 77, period. But the official story is silent about why the plane hit the Pentagon, where it actually hit the Pentagon. And I the, the, all, I read this whole section, and it just didn't didn't feel convincing to me. It all just seemed quite, quite vague and quite sort of subjective. Fortuitous data is fortuitous because you've chosen to focus on a particular aspect of it. 
Um, but I don't know that they sort of give a justification. Okay, yes, the plane hit the one reinforced wall of it, but why is that significant when the location of where it hit the other towers isn't? It only it sort of really seems that way because you're choosing to focus on that one. It's particularly, you know, you're choosing to focus on this uh, one passport that was found and not any of the other one. It, it just seems like more of a subjective choice than any sort of hard and fast principle they can point to. Now, this was a worry I had when I first read this paper, and I think it's in the thesis. It's definitely in the book, The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, published in 2016. Yes, that's correct. No, 2014. I'm getting all my dates wrong. 2014, uh, Palgrave Macmillan, probably not available in any decent bookseller because no one sells academic volumes, especially when they cost 100 US dollars a pop. Mm. My argue there that actually what they should be focusing on is the phenomena of fortunate data, which is data which is merely lucky. So isn't it lucky from the perspective of the Pentagon that Flight 77 hit that particular wall? And isn't it lucky for the investigators of the terrorist event of 9-11 that they found a passport belonging to one of the terrorists? Because unlikely things happen all the time. It's one of the one of the few things mathematicians are really certain on. Unlucky events are happening constantly. That's how people win the lottery. The problem is when you get too much fortunate data that you start to see a pattern and you end up going, this data isn't just lucky. It's it's too lucky at this point. There's a pattern of fortunate data which suggests that maybe it's not luck after all. Maybe the event has been engineered or people are manipulating the evidence to make some theory look warranted when it isn't warranted. So they need to be looking for patterns of data which then suggest there's a fortune pattern to the fortunate data and then and only then are you justified in being suspicious about what's going on there their problem is they focus on single events and go well that's just too lucky to be true but actually you can't distinguish between it being too lucky to be true and it just being lucky Mm. And in fact, yeah, that's interesting that you say that because later on they do give an example of a series of good luck, whereas up until that point they've just been talking about the individual ones. I always think that the one about the plane hitting the Pentagon is is quite difficult because it's 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 assuming intentions on the part of the pilot, and we'll never know what was going through the pilot's mind. Um, as they targeted the Pentagon. But you, you could tell stories, you know, they're choosing to assume that the fact that it approached the Pentagon from one side, then looped around and went into it from another side, shows that they'd singled out that that one particular side as the one they really wanted to crash into. But I mean, you could tell a story that they intended to go for that original side, but realised they weren't, they weren't, um, weren't not declining. What do you call it when a plane goes down? Diving? Descending? Going descending. There we go. I'm a speaker of the English language. I know words. They realized they weren't descending fast enough to hit that one, so then had to loop around as they came in lower and and were then forced to go to that other side, and it wasn't their choice at all. You know, you you can make up a story to suit it either way, and we'll just never know. So I don't know that that one... Well, especially since so many of the 9-11... 9-11? 
9-11 conspiracy theories in the pejorative sense, the ones that people think to be mad, weird, or bad, often focus on, you can't really believe that these untrained Arab terrorists were able to fly planes. You might go, well, actually, if we if we accept that, it's actually remarkable they hit the Pentagon at all, and so it probably was a random selection of wall, depending on the pilot going, I need to hit that object... That's the wall I can get. I'm going for it now. Mm. Now, so in the paper, they say that um, the official story should always at least remark upon this fortuitous data. They don't have to say this fortuitous data invalidates our theory. They can, of course, just say, yep, it's true. It's just luck. It's just good luck. Or indeed, I mean, with the Pentagon one, I guess it's kind of bad luck, really, for the for the terrorists, assuming they'd want to cause as much destruction as possible, it's bad luck that they happen to go into the most sturdy part of the building. Um, but they, but but then sometimes they say, just you, you can't always just appeal to luck. Sometimes it's not going to cut it. They say. This type of reasoning is an appeal to a version of a principle formalized by Peter Vanenwagen and appealed to by John Leslie. We cannot explain an event by appealing to chance if a good explanation other than mere chance suggests itself. And here they give the example of a person winning lotto 10 times in a row. Yes, it could, you know, it's, it's very good luck to win once, super good luck to win twice, 10 times in a row though. Now you're talking about a series of occurrences that does seem to, to you know, while not impossible, really does seem to stretch the bounds of, of possibility, and it does start to present itself to the idea that maybe maybe you're cheating, maybe there is another explanation other than just good luck. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's a case where they start looking at patterns because yes, it is unusual that someone would win lotto ten times in a row. It's not impossible. Once again. Statistically unlikely events actually happen more often than people think they will. But at the same time, if that person buys 10 winning lotto tickets in a row from the same kiosk in the same store week after week after week, you might end up going, yeah, there's something a little bit suspicious about this run of good luck. Maybe there's some kind of inside job going on there. Mm. And so relating all of this back to how fortuitous data affects belief in conspiracy theories, they say, we suggest that if there is fortuitous data that it supports the official story, that is, if there are highly fortunate incidences within the official story that suggest alternative explanations, then supporters of the official story need to offer good reasons not to accept the conspiratorial account. Without such reasons, we submit that it is irrational to believe the official story instead of the conspiracy theory because of the fishy nature of the evidence for the official story. Or rather, we submit that it is rational to believe the conspiracy theory. So, I mean, they're setting out a template for when, when it can be rational to believe in a conspiracy theory, and it relies on the evidence. So a good particularist approach. But I'm not sure if I agree with this specific approach, especially that it, it, it all relies on the idea that a conspiracy theory runs counter to an official theory. Well, yes, and a point that Charles Picton has made time and time again about things like 9-11. If you believe in the events of 9-11 as promulgated by the official theory, you believe a conspiracy theory, because no matter what you think, Al-Qaeda were involved in a conspiracy to commit a terrorist plot. We theorized about that. It turned out to be warranted. It's a warranted conspiracy theory. 
There's no contrast here between an official theory and a conspiracy theory. It's conspiracy theories all the way down. Indeed. Um, so in the next section, they, they go to their worked example. Uh, the next section, Watergate and Fortuita Starter, they use the Watergate scandal um, as an example of where the Fortuita Starter relied upon by the official story shows that the conspiracy theory was the rational thing to believe in. No, actually, uh, so Mr. Nixon would like to step in and go, I am not a crook. Yep, well, too bad, Nick. Richard, you are. Uh, but no, they say the, the Watergate scandal is both an accepted conspiracy theory and it also contains at least one instance of fortuitous data, which is the only time I think they use the phrase an accepted conspiracy theory, and I'm not quite sure yeah. how and an accepted conspiracy theory is different from they, an official yeah, story. I say, this is the problem. They're talking about accepted conspiracy theories, despite the fact that they've bought Cody's definition, at which point that's an official theory. It's not an accepted conspiracy mm. theory. That's an official theory. I thought they were talking about the role of fortuitous data with respect to conspiracy theories. Mm. Well, this isn't so, a mean, conspiracy theory by their definition. I mean, you, I suppose you could say at the time, the Nixon was the president, so his version of events was the official story. But I mean, certainly these days, it's very much the accepted version of events that the conspiracy theory was true. Um, and of course, so, so the bit of fortuitous data that they say counted against the official, that is Nixon's story, and counted for a conspiracy theory, uh, is the missing 18 and a half minutes from Nixon's tapes. Um, so we all remember Nixon was known to record everything that went on in his office, and yet... Record secretly. Record secretly, yep. Because, I mean, this is, the, this is the kind of fascinating thing about Nixon's downfall, is that no one knew, aside from Nixon and some of his closest aides, that he was recording what was going on in the Oval Office until someone let slip that Nixon had installed recording devices, which would be useful for Nixon historians to be able to look back on his presidency. And it turns out, if you're going to install recording devices in your own office and effectively spy upon yourself, what you shouldn't do is engage in any conspiratorial activity, which is captured on those tapes. Mm. And so then when he had these tapes and there just happened to be 18 and a half minutes uh, that, that would just wasn't there and nobody quite knew why. And it certainly seemed like, based on the context, those 18 and a half minutes would have shown that Nixon knew about the, 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 the rum doings at the Watergate. Well, so I still um, maintain those 18 and a half minutes was Nixon doing John Wayne impressions. And he was well, just so may, embarrassed maybe. by them. But how went, no, were, yeah. you have to get rid of that tape. Although I'm told as Alfred Hitchcock was very, very bad as well. Mm. I am Alfred Hitchcock, and this is the Twilight Zone. Something that I imagine that's exactly what he sounds like, but we'll never know it because those eight and a half minutes are gone. Um, but no, so, so back in the paper, they say this then is a prime example of fortuitous evidence that the tapes had such a gap while showing no involvement on the part of Nixon. One, supports Nixon's story, i.e. the official story, but two, the gap in recording is, quote-unquote, too good to be true, which suggests that Nixon is hiding something. And finally, three, the tape's gap goes unexplained by the official story. At the very least, accepting the official story, Nixon's version, means ruling out the suggested alternative that arises from the gap in the tapes. And so that's the example I want to look at. We, we have this, this, what they want to call fortuitous data. The official story at the time did not account for this, the, the, the fortuitousness 
of this data. Um, and when you look at an alternative theory that Nixon had indeed been conspiring and that this, uh, that this, this, this um, missing evidence would have proved it if, if it was still to be found, um, shows that the conspiracy theory uh, was, was, is the irrational one to believe in and believe in it people um, did. Although still, I mean, as we always said, it, 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 took, it took Nixon two years to get booted out. It, it wasn't, it wasn't accepted straight away. Mm. during... The the whole fandango. So allegations came out. He ran a successful election campaign. He was more popular than ever, and then he shot himself in his own foot, metaphorically. Metaphorically, yes. And so, so, so there we have it. Basically, they've they've um, suggested a particularist approach. They've defended the use of a particularist approach. They've brought up this idea of fortuitous data as being the decider in in rational versus irrational conspiracy theories, and given their example, which leads them all to their conclusion. And they conclude thusly. Consider the path we have traced so far. We've argued that believing in conspiracies cannot be irrational just in virtue of there being conspiracies. That is, we've rejected the generalist approach for a particularist account of conspiracies. We've tried to substantiate this shift by suggesting that there have been uncovered conspiracies. Part and parcel of the particularist approach is the examination of evidence, which we turn to next. We suggested that if supporting evidence fits the fortuitous mould, this was one criterion for determining if a conspiracy theory is potentially rational to believe in. Again, we suggested that when an official story contains fortuitous data, this is a strike against the rationality of believing in the official story and a point in favour of accepting the conspiracy theory that opposes it, if the supporter of the official story can't rule out the alternative suggested account. In support of fortuitous data as a criterion for discrimination, we've tried to give a real-world example of a now-accepted conspiracy theory, Watergate, for which the official story contained fortuitous data. Of course, we have suggested that other real-world incidents have exemplars of fortuitous data too, i.e. the passport case and the Pentagon case, but we refrain from pronouncing one way or the other on these more recent events. Seriously, are these guys 9-11 truthers? I do not know. I must admit, when I first read the paper, I did think that these were just cute examples. Now that you've pointed out that actually the way that they use them is kind of a just asking questions approach, maybe they were. Maybe this is the first 9-11 truth paper within the philosophical community. It certainly isn't the last, but it is kind of in- in- interesting that no one really talks about that aspect, but then again, no one really talks about the fortuitous data aspect. Everyone mm. talks about Buting and Taylor with respect to the nomenclature of particularism and generalism. The rest of their contribution to the philosophical canon does go largely unnoticed. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so having read through the whole thing, I did think, yeah, obviously there's, there's, there's the enormous significance of these, of this terminology being introduced, which I, I, I assume once, uh, was there a lot of, hey, yeah, sort of reactions when it showed up? Was, oh, th- that's it. That's the idea I was trying to put my finger on. So I was uh, thinking about this earlier today, and I think I might be the person who helped popularize those terms. I use them in the thesis, I use them in the book, I cite Buting and Taylor quite widely in the first suite of papers that I produce after my PhD, and I think people start picking up on the term because I'm spending so much time promoting 
the terminology. So certainly when I read the paper, I went, aha, those are useful terms to describe two positions on what you take to be the warrant of conspiracy theory as a class, if you're a generalist, or the worry that there is no class of conspiracy theories we consider to be prima facie unwarranted, which is the particularist camp. I think people then picked up on those terms because I spent so much time going, look, this is a really useful way to demarcate the work that we philosophers are doing from work that is found elsewhere. I might be wrong about that. I could probably do a literature review and see whether anyone else is citing Buting and Taylor before me. But I have a suspicion I might be the person responsible for promoting these people's work and thus promoting these terms in common usage in the literature now. Well, there you go. And of course, I mean, we should say these are these are very useful new terms, but they apply to positions that people already had. They just didn't. They just hadn't hadn't come upon the language to to demarcate their positions. But yeah, I mean, as far as the rest of the paper goes, I, I'm certainly not convinced. The whole fortuitous data thing. I mean, I, I understand the intuition that we should be suspicious when things sound too good to be true. But what what counts as too good to be true, I think, will depend can be quite subjective um, and and influenced by your sort of prior beliefs and and what what you are inclined to believe and i mean in practice we hear this sort of thing come up a lot of the time in conspiracy theories that we would generally think of being as unwarranted we see a lot of you know oh that's a little too convenient isn't it that's that's you know is it what wasn't it like i mean that's it's it's this it comes across as the sort of innuendo that things like loose change are full of a lot of you know are we really expected to believe that blah 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 isn't it convenient that blah blah blah, blah, um, which it, it just doesn't seem like it's a strong enough sort of foundation to be to be making claims about whole classes of conspiracy theories. No, I agree. It's a nice idea, and I do think there is something to patterns of data, given that we tend to infer to things based upon patterns of data. If it turns out there's too much fortunate data being used to support a particular theory, the theory appears to be too lucky, then that is grounds to be suspicious of that pattern of data. But we are kind of operating with assumptions about how we think the world works at that point. And we might just be wrong about that. You can win the lottery 10 times in a row. There's nothing that actually prevents that event from occurring. And it would look very suspicious, but it might arise naturally. Mm. And so just because a pattern of data looks too lucky, that doesn't mean it's too lucky to be true. Especially if you're only looking at single data mm. points and going, oh, isn't it lucky they hit that particular wall? Okay, so, yeah, but at the same time, maybe they just did. Mm. Maybe they just did. And, you know... Some passports are going to survive a plane crash due to the way that things move around in a plane as it's crashing into an object. So, yeah, I mean, it's lucky that a terrorist passport survived. But at the same time, it's not unlikely in the sense that it could never happen. It probably happens more often than we think. In fact, mm. actually, this would be a great place to start thinking about things like the Lockerbie bombings and the like, cases of other terrorist events, and go, well, actually, what was left behind in those events? 
be quite curious mm. to look at that stuff. Yes. Um, yeah, I, th I think that that sort of equivocation, the going from talking about single events to then talking about a series of events like winning the lotto 10 times is a bit of a weakness of the paper as well. There, there's a bit of a leap there that, that, that they either don't acknowledge that they're making or aren't aware that they're making. Well, yes, because when you go from the single event to the really, really unlikely event of winning lotto 10 times in a row, it's of are the cons is the errant data which is fortuitous in the discussion they're having, is it like the latter case, winning Lotto 10 times in a row, which seems really, really suspicious, or is it the more minor kind of hitting a particular wall, which seems moderately suspicious, but certainly nowhere near as suspicious as someone who says, oh, I've just won five billion pounds for the tenth time in a row this week. Mm. Um, and of course, a large part of the of the the post defending particularism part of the paper uh, rests on this definition of conspiracy theories that says they're always in opposition to the official theory, and that's that's something we've talked about before in the past that I, I certainly don't buy. I don't think it's a necessary or particularly useful distinction to make in the definition. Um, but a lot of this paper rests on the idea that you're deciding between. An official, a conspiracy theory and an official story, um, and and what 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 is the rational way to make that decision? So yeah, no, I'm 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 not convinced. Significant, but ultimately I I don't buy the main thrust of their paper. Yes, as I say, it's a seminal paper because of the way the terminology gets introduced to the debate, and the fact that that terminology is now kind of standard in the philosophy of conspiracy theory. But it is also interesting that. That's not the topic of the paper. The topic of the paper is a discussion of fortuitous data, and I might be the only person who's actually fisked that particular part of the paper. It hasn't had any real contribution to the ongoing literature at all. Hmm. Well, there we go. So I think that's a good place to call this episode to an end. We, of course, have a bonus episode coming up where I understand things get a little drastic. All they do, we're going to be talking about a decentralized radical autonomous search team investigating COVID-19, and you won't believe what links them to a bank in this country. You, you, you might, after we've explained it all, but... Well, Initially, but maybe, only Patreon will ever know about that. That's true. Yep, it's a bonus episode for our patrons, uh, whom we love and cherish above all others in this world. Um, if you'd like to become a patron, just go to Patreon and search for the Podcaster's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, galaxy? And galaxy, well, did I finally do it? You did. We've, we've, you finally, after thing, all this we've, time, we've had a you committed to the, galaxy the error that I've committed name. several times. Podcast is mean, guide I mean, to the conspiracy. You, you might as well just give the entire game away and go. Actually, we, we're just a spin-off of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Actually, mm. we should now become the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Conspiracy. We probably should actually. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this episode's gone on long enough, I think. So um, I'm simply going to call things to a close by saying goodbye. And I'm going to call things to a close by going good. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Anderson and me, Dr. M.R.X. Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon.
And remember, it's just a step to the left.